Sola Gratia. We are again taken back to the early conflict with Rome, uh, between Rome on the one hand, and in this case, at least where I want to start, is with Augustine, who is now Bishop of Hippo in Requius, in Anab- which is Anabai now, which is in Algeria. So think Algeria uh, is Augustine, a great bishop of the church, and then you have yet another fellow. But by the end of the 4th century, 396 B.C. exactly, A.C., Augustine was already advocating that people were innately sinful and they were desperately dependent upon God's unmerited grace for salvation. He wrote that in Ad Simplia Minor. At about the same time, there's a British monk named Pelagius. And he was, at the time, teaching in Rome. And he began to circulate a diametrically opposed doctrine of human nature and the viability of free will and human responsibility unto salvation and sanctification. You see, according to Pelagius, since a primary feature of human nature was described as this innate capacity to do either good or evil, he wrote then a book called The Possibility of Not Sinning, wherein he basically argued that, that our assurance of salvation, or what we call the doctrine of justification, that doctrine which teaches that we are no longer needing to justify ourselves to God because we have been justified. We are now, uh, legally speaking, if you will, not guilty. Been justified. And therefore, and that's the point in which we all would say that's when we have our salvation assurance. Justification. He was arguing that justification happens only after perfection. Arguing that, the, in his book, on the possibility of not sinning, that we could, over time, cease to sin. Now, there was an elaborate argument. I won't go through that right now. But I want you to hear that carefully because it's, in, it's a very core with this idea of the possibility of not sinning. Uh, is this idea, therefore, that puts assurance after justification, you know, which is right, but justification after perfection. And so there it gets set up. Augustine's response was to say that from the start, and he wrote his book on the predestination of saints, to the finish, and another book on the gift of perseverance, that salvation, because of God's absolute sovereignty, is by grace alone because of God's absolute sovereignty alone. Now stop for a minute. Fast paced now almost, what, 1,500 years. And here we are. Even more than that. And almost 2,000, what, well, 1,600 years. Close to enlightenment. Something happened in the enlightenment that was huge. And this is this idea of, of humanism that turned everything upside down in relation to God. A humanism that then puts confidence in itself. Pelagius, you could say, was, was a kind of a post-enlightenment way of thinking about nature and identity. I say this because we are tempted in this conversation to really look at Scripture out of its context. We're tempted to go into all our little post-enlightenment rationalist kinds of way of thinking And we're going to start talking about free will and God's will. And we're going to start talking about, you know, all these sorts of things. And it would be a mistake because if we understand the scriptures, we will talk about it. This, it was assumed that the gods are sovereign. And it was assumed that we are in in, in a dependent relationship with them. 
And so we get into this thing, and, and so Pelagius was, was way out there, you could say. But again, here's what, what Augustine was saying. Sola gratia, or grace alone. What do we mean? Sola gratia for Augustine, contra Pelagian, meant grace, that our salvation is by grace at the very start, grace to the end. Grace in the middle, grace without boasting, grace that precludes all glory but in the glory of God, grace without addition, grace without mixture, however you could say it. That's what he was saying. All false concepts of grace would seek to eliminate at least one of those categories that I just mentioned. And at the very heart of this solus agratia is, is the circular it's like this. If you have a, a, a chain, we call it the order salutis, but if you had a chain, the, the kind of logical order of what has to happen to us in order for us to be saved, and if one link in that chain is broken, then how strong is the faith? It's as strong as that link. If our assurance is predicated upon even one broken link, and so what Augustine is arguing, not in this cerebral, rationalistic sense of free will debate. What he is saying is this, grace. For you to experience grace, we have to have a, a chain of events that in every single chain is dependent not upon our broken and fallible wills, but on the will of God. In other words, he's arguing so goes sovereignty, God's sovereignty. So goes grace. Again, you hear what I'm trying to say? We hear sovereignty as a point of controversy with free will. Augustine, when he's engaged with Pelagianism, is hearing without sovereignty, there's no grace. And if there is no grace, all of the horrors that we'll see will pick back up in the Reformation are right there theologically justified. I mean, if you believe that, that I'm, it's, it's not until my perfection that I can have that final assurance of being justified, then you're going to do a lots of things. You're going to start adding a lots of things. You're going to have to add a lot of rules so I can know that I'm keeping all the rules so that I can work myself into salvation, legalism. You're going to do things like look to the scripture and say, well, gosh, I, I instinctually know that I'm not perfected before I die because I don't know anybody that's perfected. So we're going to add to it another season of perfecting called purgatory. If you're trying to strive for justification based on perfection. Oh, and if I can't derive all of that, then I'm going to come up with, well, what was called the indulgences. Little super chips, if you will, that it was believed that God had given to the church and that you could temporally purchase them by either participating in rituals, and these rituals would gain you some of these, these sort of uh, holiness chips that you could put into your account, or even to the account of those who had died by lighting candles and saying a prayer. You see, it's all about a theology underneath it. That's why I'm starting with Pelagius and Augustine. So goes sovereignty, so goes grace. The key issue is the human part in salvation in relation to God's part. God's will versus human's will. God's power versus human power. And in the end, Augustine quite voluminously argued God all the way. Sola gratia. Grace alone is the 
faith alone, you're saved. Fast forward then to the 16th century. The issue reemerged in a way that led to what we call the Protestant Reformation. Rome continued uh, in its alliance to a kind of semi-plagialism at this time. Uh, positions served as the theological justification for what we call sacerdotalism, which is this salvation tied to the, to the keeping of rites and rituals in order that I can gain perfection by virtue of those rites and rituals. There was also this thing called indulgences where, uh, and it's a difficult and complicated sort of doctrine, but at the, at the gist of it was this idea that, that you're, you could, Christians could receive temporal punishment for sin even after its guilt and eternal punishment had been forgiven. And the temporal punishment would be paid either here on earth or later in purgatory. And so the church had this treasury, if you will, composed of, quote, there were superabundant merits of Christ applied to the saints, end quote, which the church, through the exercises of the power of its keys, its authority, could transfer to the benefit of those who were due temporal punishment. You can see how this could lead to all sorts of excesses. Even the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, when they affirmed indulgences, warned against those excesses and abuses. And by the Reformation, they were legion. And so with this Pelagian position, undergirding most of the grievances, the reformers, of course, rediscovered the gospel. But more importantly, they rediscovered with their sola scripture. They went to the scripture. And when Luther saw that we must be justified, uh, that only the righteous will be justified, he was, he was set into a whirlwind of, of internal conflict. He hated it, he said. He hated Romans and that passion. About the, just, uh, about the righteous until he learned about this substitutionary righteousness that does not come by virtue of these indulgent superabundance of temporal chips, if you will, but that would come simply by grace through faith. It was huge. It, set, it, was just, it just set everything into a different direction. You see, that brings us to Exodus 33. Much of the passage that Augustine referred to, as with the Reformers, would go to a place like Exodus 33, and then Romans 9. And so as we turn to Exodus 33, try to understand the story in the context of redemptive history. I'm just going to tell you the story pretty briefly. But just remember that from the very beginning, after the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, that Jesus Christ promised them the seed of a woman, and in that seed somehow they were going to be clothed with the righteousness of a substitutionary person. Someone who could be both God and man in this miraculous birth of a woman, in the seed of a woman. And the symbol of that, even with Adam and Eve, was to cover them with the slain skin of an animal that, that covered up their shame when they were naked. And this promise goes forward through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This idea that, that at the core, though, was that our salvation rests not on our own works or will, ultimately. It's ultimately resulting from God in his sovereign pre-election of those who he would call. That story has emerged throughout Genesis. In fact, Genesis is the story of election, if you will. How is Jacob I loved, and I didn't choose Esau? Now, he doesn't mean he hated Esau in the way that we think of hate Esau. But he loved Jacob in the sense he was a covenant child. He chose him to be fruitful. 
part of the covenant. Now, this is, you might say, harsh teaching. You've got to remember that, that the context for all of this election that you hear about, and I know that's a true word, but the context for all this is that everyone elected to reject God. That was free. We all freely elect to reject God. We do it every time we sin. Underneath it is the original sin of rejecting God, even at that moment. It's what Adam and Eve did and all their posterity. Is we reject God. We have it in us. You ever had children? You'll figure that out. You just don't teach them to sin. You just don't. It's unbelievable. You don't teach them to rebel. They just do it. You know, they're cute sometimes when they do it when they're young, but they do it. And it's great. But it's not great. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) But here's the point I'm making. So keep in mind the story of Scripture begins with all of humanity in the freedom of their will in a state of innocence who freely chose to reject God. And that seed is in every one of us. So it's not as though there are people out there in this idea of election that are saying, God, I want in. No, you're not elected. See, what you're about to learn is that no one would want to be elected except that God would act first in what we call regeneration or effectual calling, a calling that has the power behind it to change my will, to change my nature. Paul would describe that that kind of conversion is becoming a new creature. Remember, if you've read all the scripture, all through the Bible, salvation is described as like a new creation. Because now the old creation is dead morally in our trespasses and sins. So please don't hear this story in our post-enlightenment sort of critical apparatus and say, oh, it's like these people were out there and, and this predestination thing I hear that people talk about, which is in the Bible, you've got to deal with it. The word and everything. What he's really saying is that all of us will to reject God. To reject God is to reject life. Therefore, we're all dead in that life. And the story of redemption is God newly creating some that they might desire, therefore, to want reunion and reconciliation with him. If you want it, good news, that was a gift of God. You wouldn't want it. You wouldn't be in this room except for it started with this from the very beginning, like I said, like Augustine said, it starts with not faith in order to be regenerated. It starts with regeneration in order to have faith. Remember Christ said this to Nicodemus, what must I do to be saved? Well, you must be born again. He didn't say you must have faith. He said you must be born again. And then you will believe. And you'll be saved. And it goes on from there. All right, so let's just review very quickly the story. It's a a powerful story. It starts with this command that Moses said to Moses. In the context of this, remember, before uh, what had happened is God had saved Israel from Egypt. This horrible, tyrannical, abusive situation. But very quickly, Egypt becomes like a, 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 what's the word, we we call it a, 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 It's, it's, a, it's an image painting as you go forward. But here was Egypt, lost, if you will, and dead in the trespasses, etc. that had happened there. And then God saves Israel, Israel from Egypt. Miraculous things. And these people had seen these miraculous things. And then you fast forward to 
to up until chapter 32. And what you find there is a people who then, God is renewing his covenant with Israel. Moses goes up into the mountain like an intercessor mediator between God and the people. They are up there crafting the law of the covenant, the law that was going to tell them about God and about human and humanity and, what, and how then to live together in order to have this abundant life. He comes down off the mountain and, oh my gosh, he's dancing around a naked bull, trying to fertilize, make the bull get more sensual that it might be more fertile since it was a symbol of, 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 of abundance and, and flourishing by having temple sacrifices. I mean, can you believe this? These are the same people in their own lifetime that had been set free from a, by God from all this slavery, and now they're worshiping around a bull. God, of course, is offended. On behalf of God, Moses throws down the laws of the Ten Commandments, the first version of the two stone tablets. And there we hear this incredible curse, how these people are a stiff-necked people, and how he cannot dwell with them lest he consume them. That gets you to chapter 30, 33 where the Lord said to Moses, go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up to the land of Egypt, and go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear that? I'm not going to break my promise. I'm going to send you on to that land. Which you'd think is, wow, after what we've done, you've got to be kidding me. But then it goes on. Because he goes on to say this, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, blah, 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 blah. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. For I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, do you hear what just happened? I mean, have any of y'all seen that commercial uh, where the little boy goes in like this, all scared to his mother and father who's sitting in the bed in their bedroom, and he just wrecks a car? Have y'all seen that commercial? It's kind of been around. And he goes up there, and he's nervous, and he's going, Mom, Dad, uh, you know, and it's about insurance. He says, you know, I, I, heard, I know our insurance company will buy us a new car if it's, if it's a certain kind of an accident. And immediately they discern that what he's saying is he just wrecked the car. And the mother says, four weeks without a car. And he goes, thank you, thank you, and he takes off like that. In other words, it was like, oh, thank God. That's, that's nothing. In other words, I felt when I was reading this again that that's the reaction that I would have expected Israel to have. That here they are, they have literally been just fornicating in front of God around a big calf that they're worshiping, or, or a bull, rejecting God after all that God had done for them, and God still is willing to send them on to the promised land, and I'm thinking, Phew, we got out of that one good, Right? promised to send angels before them for their protection. Surprise reaction. Verse 4. When the people heard this, these harsh words, harsh! Are you kidding? I thought it was a lightning bolt that should have come. They were harsh words and it says they mourned. Again, at first glance it would seem that this was all good. The utopian promise is being reestablished in spite of what they've done. Based on the intercession of Moses that we saw in chapter 32 before this passage. The caveat is I will not go with you, he says. So what does that mean? Well, at least they had some good theology. Because they know that salvation 
even with a covenant, even with the message, even with the teaching, there is no salvation apart from divine presence. Presence is power. Presence is what makes those promises and those words and those messages take effect into our lives, that we can experience it. No presence, no power. And God was not going with them. You see, they weren't going to be saved. They were just being given escort into another land. Do you believe that today? That's all he said. The Shekinah glory was lifted off the temple in the Old Testament. That means that temple was no longer a temple. There was nothing happening there. Same thing is today. And so these people were grieving. And so God determines not to go with them, for they says, you are a stiff-necked people, but I'm going to let you go to the place anyway and get out of this mess. And like for Moses and the people, it was like taking away salvation itself. And this is where we hear this amazing event intercession of Moses to God. This is one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible. I wish I had a hundred hours to talk about it. But I want you to think of it this way. What we see Moses doing and how Moses is acting right now is nothing short of messianic. Quite intense. In fact, have you ever thought about it? We've read the New Testament. How what you just heard read in this story, how Moses experience the transfiguration of God. How Moses is described as, as someone that God has favored. How he is your, my favored one. How Moses goes to the Father and prays for the people. It's Jesus. It's a type of Jesus figure. And so we're encountering nothing less than Christ. In the Gospel of John, we see the same pattern. This one chosen of God to intercede for the people one who experienced the transfiguration of Christ as, as Christ was both God and transfigured, but then the same one that transfigured is also portrayed as interceding for the people in John 17 in a, in a prayer that almost sounds identical to the prayer of, 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 of Moses right here. It's amazing how intentional John was especially to reflect on this passage to help us understand who Jesus was. Right here, people, we have Moses the ultimate Moses of God, Jesus Christ. So, so think about what's happening here. When Moses, he goes and, he, he's, and, and he, it's not enough. They're, they're, remember, they're petrified because God's not going. So he goes to intercede for him that God would go. And what does he do? He goes into the tent where this cloud of presence was hovering, where God was still present. It was outside of where the people were, by the way. He wasn't with the people. He was out there in that tent. So God goes out to where God, uh, Moses goes to where God is, and he begins this amazing prayer. He appeals to God's promise to Abraham and Isaac. Good thing. When you want to intercede for prayer, start with the promises of God. If you're going to pray for something, go to the scripture and find where God has promised it. To see if your prayer is a right prayer, first of all. Make sure you understand the promise. And then pray that thing. The second thing he does is he appeals to God's character. How God has revealed himself in pages past as a is a God who is, who is gracious and slow to anger. Words that he had spoken to Moses and earlier and even Abraham. So he appeals to his promise. As in, in verse 40, consider too that this nation is your people, he said. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what you told us, God. And now you're not going. And so what does God do? So what he says uh, he said to them, if your presence will not go, oh, this is Moses, uh, I'm sorry, interceding. He goes on to argue, if your presence will not go, 
do not carry us up from here. For how shall I be known that I have found favor in your sight and, and your people unless you go with us? Now, what is, what is Moses asking for honestly here? I mean, God just said, you know what? You know, that, that, that you got to go without me. And now God is saying what? Okay, I'll go. God's response to Moses is, I will do the very thing that you have asked for, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So in response to this, act, this prayer, God says, I'll go. Story over, right? I mean, what are you thinking right now? Okay, you got what you wanted. <laughs> but there's something else. Now Moses is kind of clicking it through his brain. And he says this weird thing. Lord, another request, believe it or not, what, what gall, Lord, show me your glory. Now, why that question? What was Moses asking for there? See, underneath it was this really important question I know you're asking too in your own life. God, can I trust you? In other words, and he's going to rehearse this whole story. God, you said that you would consume us. For we are a stiff-necked and silent people. I went over here and you said I found favor in your sight, so therefore I will go with you and your people to the promised land. Great, but how can I trust that now you're not going to consume us? Show me your glory. What's he asking? I need to know you more, God. I need to understand you more. Show me your nature. What, what are you like, God? And we see that because that's exactly what God does. He's not asking for some kind of a physical, glorious picture of God. In fact, God says, I'm not going to show you that kind of glory. He's going to unveil to Moses the most famous saying of God. But what God does is, is just amazing. He's asking for God to reveal himself. And here's what God says, verse 19. Okay, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you who I am, my name. And his name, I am. I am. What did you get from that? I get it. I am. I exist because I self-exist. I do because it all comes from who I am that I do. It's the most succinct and powerful way to say, I am absolutely sovereign. All things that move, I move them. And I am yet unmoved by anything. I do what I want to do. And nothing but what I want to do. I am is just the most powerful word you could possibly, or, or a description of God you could possibly, and that's why this word that you might know as Yahweh is the most sacred name in Jewish Christian history right now. I am the Lord is the way it's translated in your, your thing there. God's character is revealed in his mere good pleasure than to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. Grace on whom he will show grace. It's not contingent on us and our will and our works. There is no link in this chain of, of salvation that at one link has Dustin Graham's name on it. 
It's all God from beginning to end. I am. Their salvation is by grace alone. He says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. It therefore does not depend on you, Moses. Good news. You are a rebellious and stick-necked people, probably more so than you even know. But the good news is, for the mere pleasure of my character to do it, I will do it for you. Isn't it sad that we take the, con- the conversation of, of the sovereignty of God and we turn it into this rationalistic, you know, controversy? If you go back to the Old Testament where, where we see this, it had nothing to do with God. It had to do with grace. Moses, I mean, uh, Moses was looking for some assurance that though they deserved God's would instead give them grace. And he's tempted to do what you and I do all the time, try to find something in me. You would have liked, he probably was thinking, maybe God would have said something like, well, you're at least not as bad as those Hittite people. Isn't that what we say? Or, you're not so bad. You've done some pretty decent things. You're you're a pretty good person. You go to church every once in a while. I mean, that's the way we deal with our problems, isn't it? Our sin problems. We try to justify ourselves as if we have to justify ourselves to get into the kingdom. Here is the passage that that governed the Reformation so astonishingly. Paul will quote this again in chapter 9. We read it earlier. And it was proclaimed not as bad news, because we've now lost our freedom in some ways. It's proclaimed as good news, because praise God, it is by his mere good pleasure that he saves us from beginning to end, and the source of full assurance of salvation. Well, the story goes on in chapter 34, you've read it, where there's a renewal of vows, where he instructs Moses now to go back up the mountain, rewrite the stone of tablets. We're starting all over again, Moses. And why are we doing it all again, over again? Because I'm just gracious, that's why. Now, the people this time showed some repentance. They took off their ornaments, and there's a long story, but I don't have the time to do it, but that was a show of repentance when they did that. They were supposed to have done it back in chapter 31, but they didn't. But now they did. They responded to the grace of God by repentance. And so the Lord were told to send it in the cloud. That means it came back down upon the people and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that is to say, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it all starts with what? Not I am, not you are. You are repentant. You are good. You are faithful. You are this. You are that. You've done this. I want you to see, I, I can't say it enough. This revelation of God's glory starts with, I am. And out of I am, the sovereignty of God, not me am, I get this long list of graciousness, attributes. Well, the summary then is really quite clear. The reformers, Luther, all of them rediscovered sola gratia. The issue, let me make it clear, is not the necessity of sola Every religion that's theistic in nature, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, 
uh, uh, Islam, uh, every religion will say, and they believe and they do, we, they all, we all believe together in the necessity of grace. The question of the Reformation is not about the necessity. The question is sufficiency. Is it alone sufficient? It's this idea of our relationship to God. How do we, how do these two be, how does God and humanity work together? There's two options. There's a synergistic way of working where it takes two parties to be saved, right? Synergy. Or it's a monergistic relation. There's one party. The reformers came out as monergistic. That is, there's only one party in our salvation, and we just take it as a gift. We just receive it. And even the act to receive it by faith is the gift of God. Just a couple of scriptures. So then, it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Romans uh, 9. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Could it be any clearer? Monogenistic. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Believing was gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the free gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one can boast. On it goes and on. Again, all religions teach in some way or another of the necessity of grace. Our Christianity, if it's a right Christianity, says more than that. It says it's the sufficiency. It's all that's needed for me to be saved from beginning to end. They understood that. Now let me just apply it in a couple of ways. Think about today's Christianity. I, I don't have any way of you know, quantifying this, but I get the sense, if you, look out, if you just look at the whole of Christianity, that the overwhelming majority of Christianity is, is Pelagian. Evangelical is probably worse than most. And I come from an evangelical background. I love the, the things that evangelicals believe. But look at the way we do evangelism today and evangelicalism. You see, if you're Pelagian and you understand that, that there is someone's will over there, that by human ingenuity and all kinds of activity, the church kind of gets alongside of the Holy Spirit, kind of like the Holy Spirit's a lawyer, someone who's convincing me or, or someone who's moving me. And we will do all sorts of things to emotionally manipulate you, to, to get you revved up to a place where you can make a decision and lose a little bit of your sense of being as you do it. Evangelism becomes something that we do because I've got to convert your free will. Now, don't get me wrong. We do believe there's a, a conversion that needs to take place, and it's got to be done out of your will. But what we believe is that by God's grace, if you hear the gospel, just a simple, clear presentation of the gospel. That God will have changed your nature such that that will be irresistible to you. When the great evangelist George Whitfield argued against his semi-Pelagian brother Wesley, why he believed sovereignty was so important, he said, it's the only thing that gives me hope. I stand up, I preach the gospel faithfully, 
and have every expectation that there are some who've been chosen of God, who've been given the birth of regeneration, that will hear it and go, I love it, I want it. We don't have to manipulate people. And I hope you never feel that way here at this church. We could do a lot of bells and jingles. Believe me, I've been there, I've done it. We could get you emotionally using music, and we could do a lot of things to kind of move you into this place. But if you study conversions like that, it's unbelievable how serious they are over a period of years. Like mountaintop experience. It always goes away. It changes the way we do evangelism. It changes the way we think of our sermon. You say, oh, pastor, none of us think that we have to be perfected in order to uh, be saved. Well, you probably have that doctrine in your head. Probably most of you do if you're a Christian and you've been around. And we would never think that there's these sort of ties between temporal blessings and my sanctification. Oh, no, we don't believe that stuff. We're, we're, we're about grace. Really? I mean, how many times have you thought when you had a car accident, oh, God must be mad at me? It's crazy. This idea that you have a car because somehow, you know, we had to sort of do something to make God love us. I mean, how can we get it into our that if you're a parent, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It, it just gives me great pleasure to see my children happy. I'm not asking for a second that they do something for me. To, to do. If I could do something to make my, my children happy, that's what love does. I would do that. I would look out at the playground that I'd build for them in the backyard, and they were playing, and my heart would lose, literally lose a bump. Do you know your God like that? He's not a God that's over there angry at you, saved because of solar gospel. Grace alone. It's in his nature to be happy and like you. And so that car wreck has something to do maybe with God's love for you as a parent who might want to to teach you something, who might want to, uh, who's preparing you for something. There's something good and gracious that's perhaps in that car wreck. Yeah, we believe he's sovereign. But it's not, I must have done something bad. I mean, unless there's a direct cause. I was drinking and I was drunk and I wrecked. Then, okay, maybe it's because I was drunk and I need to unwind. But you see what I'm saying? We hear it all the time. And what about assurance? Are you right now, do you have assurance? I mean, can you say, know I'm going to heaven. Can you say that? Well, if you can't, I suspect you've got a little semi-plagia in your heart, unless you just yet as believe in Christ. And you're going to say, well, what is belief then? I don't, I, I don't get it, Pastor. Well, I'll tell you. It's this. It's really simple. You know, saved by grace through faith alone, grace alone, faith alone means that if I want salvation, well, you wouldn't want it except Christ gives it to you. If you're wrestling with it, good sign. You wouldn't give a flip if Christ had not already begun a work in your heart. Now might you hear the gospel? Might you come talk with me or Craig or one of the, somebody else and say, help me understand. I want it, but I, I need to understand it. And then you're lacking some of that understanding to see how it works together. And you need someone to go walk you through the logic of the gospel. But, but I'm going to tell you, you should have assurance. You should have assurance. If you don't, It's yours. It's a gift. You should seek it. Let us help you find it.
Because we believe we're saved by grace through faith alone. Faith is not a work. It's just wanting it and saying thanks. And then going and participating in those ways like you're doing right now where God will give you and strengthen your faith more and more. And so we come to this table, and I encourage us to come to our Moses, one who intercedes for us right now, is interceding for you right now, the way we saw Moses do it. Remember who you are, God. And remember, I am that lamb that was sacrificed. God, hear their prayer. Bring them to the fullness of their faith. And that's what your, your, your mediator is doing right now. Let's sing our song.